3, starting in verse 8. Finally, all of you have unity in mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For Psalm, quoting from Psalm 34, whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceit, from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Verse 12, or sorry, verse 13. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that you have in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good or clear conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil." Verse 18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh that made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In verse 22, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Lord, help us as we study this word this morning to in the first part of this, God, see the practicality, the things that we need to put into practice immediately to be obedient to you and to you alone. God, help us to be refreshed in your word this morning, listening to your Holy Spirit speak to us. God, let us respond in a way that honors and glorifies you and you alone. Let us see the sufficiency of your scripture, the authority of it. Let us see us as followers of you under your word. God, that we might submit our own lives that have been purchased by you back to you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Peter just had just finished talking about and preaching or writing to these exiled believers about what it looks like to be living in submission to earthly authorities, to the emperor, to ungodly husbands, to earthly masters, and uh, preached to these sojourning exiles on what a, sub- a submissive life looks like. And you have to remind yourself that these folks are not meeting like we are meeting right now. They're not gathered at a Sunday morning gathering in a nice, safe, secure, for some of you, warm building or cold building. Um, They're not gathered like that. They didn't have a great formal uh, worship time that was really well put together and very orderly. But instead, they were meeting in somewhat of a wartime bunker. What I mean by that is they were all experiencing persecution and fiery trials. And in a sense, the church gathered under the impression of war or under the the ongoing battle against them. 
Like, like they were meeting in a wartime bunker. I think about, as a child, the few times that we had a tornado-warned severe sun- thunderstorm and how we would quickly go into the tornado cellar or shelter uh, waiting for the storm to pass, waiting for my dad or my best friend's dad to say, hey, it's all clear, we can now exit the bunker or exit the storm cellar and continue on with life. In the midst of that tornado cellar or the bunker, the wartime bunker, there are certain things you want to hear and certain things that you don't want to hear. You want to hear an all clear. You want to hear that the war is over or the tornado has passed. You don't want to hear that the tornado has regained strength and it's going to continue. You don't want to hear that the war is now even pressing and now it's actually on top of you and so stay hunkered down even longer. And I also don't think you want to hear these five characteristics that Peter is about to to talk about. You don't want to hear in the, in the midst of war, in the midst of battle, in the midst of a storm, hey, be humble. Hey, be compassionate. Hey, show sympathy. You're not wanting to hear these words. Instead, you might want to hear words of get up, fight, arm yourselves, go and destroy the enemy. Uh, go and take the tornado and rope it like that wild bill guy or whoever it was that roped the tornado. Go out and storm uh, storm the storm. Push it back. Be more than a conqueror. You want to hear those types of words. But for some reason, Peter, inspired by the Holy Spirit, maybe through life experience or whatever the case may be, writes these words. You're living as exiles. You're sojourners in a foreign land. You're going to be persecuted. You're going to experience fiery trials. The storm is not over. The war will continue. And so with all of that in mind and the living hope that you have in Jesus, demonstrate these five characteristics. So imagine yourself this morning in a storm cellar as a tornado or a thunderstorm, severe thunderstorm, tornado warned, a thunderstorm is approaching. And these characteristics are given to you as you're going to approach approach the storm. Look at verse 8. Finally, says, which is awesome that Peter says finally, he gives every preacher the greatest preacher trait. He says finally, and yet he writes two more chapters. (laughs) He says finally, and yet he continues on. So he doesn't mean finally, he doesn't mean finally at all. It's just kind of in conclusion to the submission point of it. Finally, all of you. He's not now just talking to husbands or just talking to wives or just talking to slaves or just talking to these exiles as earthly citizens. He's talking to everyone within the church, everyone who has been purchased by the blood of Jesus, all of you. doesn't matter your age, your ethnicity, your gender, all of you. Here's what you should do within the church, within the storm cellar, within the wartime bunker. Here's what you should be doing. Have unity in mind. Have sympathy in mind. Have brotherly love in practice. A tender heart and a humble mind. Not repaying evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, to bless. For to, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. So it, it seems as if Peter is saying, in the midst of this war, in the midst of this storm, the tornado who is pressing down upon you, the wind and the rain and the hell that is coming to beat you up, Go, and instead of beating it up, go and return a blessing towards it. And can you imagine how crazy you would be 
And how many people on your block would say you are an idiot for going out and saying, Bless you, O tornado. Bless you, O wind and hail. Bless you, O suffering moment. Bless you, O fiery trials. Bless you, O enemies of mine. And Peter is calling us to this. Where you have been, evil has been put on you, and you re- return evil for evil like the world would normally do. Peter is saying, no, you're going to be, you're going to be different. And it starts with unity. Again, uh, when I was a child and a tornado, I'm thinking about a tornado that was uh, coming towards our home. And uh, we had just been, left the Little League baseball fields and hurried as quickly as we could. And my best friend's family and my family uh, gather in the, um, in, the, in the tornado cellar. And uh, all kinds of conversations are happening. There's, there's, uh, there's folks in the, the storm cellar who are trying to be, bring comfort and peace. It's going to be okay. You've heard these things before in the midst of a storm. Don't worry about it. I don't know why you're fretting. It's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. Just, just trust me. But there's some unity there. We're all in the same, we're all in the same place. We're all experiencing the same things. There's a, a like-mindedness. I remember my best friend saying, Hey mama, I'm hungry. And I remember thinking the same thing. Hey, I'm, I'm hungry also. I'm, I'm hungry. It's just, like Brett's hungry. So, so am I. And then my sister and his sister and his brother, hey, we're hungry too. There's a like-mindedness in hunger. There's a like-mindedness in that. So who has food? So I've told you this story before, I think, but my mom and my best friend's mom began searching their purses, which, which men we know, there are so many things in there. There are bear traps in there. We don't stick, we've been teaching our kids, don't. Don't stick your hand in your mom's purse because you'll never return. It's like a wardrobe to a whole nother world inside a woman's purse. And within my mom's purse, my my, uh, best friend's mom only found certs or breath mints, which is not going to sustain for a while. But within my mom's purse, from the Sunday church fellowship before, Sunday night church fellowship before, my mom found a Dairy Queen corn dog. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, and so uh, we did not eat that. And hunger was never quenched, but it, but still, there was a like-mindedness in hunger, and uh, and within that bunker, you're wanting to receive the right things, the things that are going to sustain or fulfill the unity that you have. Within the church, it's the same way. It's the same. It's the same way. Unity, a like-mindedness. We're one mind in intent and in purpose. Why are we in the storm cellar? To remain safe from the tornado. Why are we gathered as the church? To worship Christ. To create unity. To serve one another. To serve Christ. To serve the world. To worship Christ. We are gathered to worship Him and Him alone. We're gathered to do these things. To equip one another. So that we can withstand the fiery trials that are coming our way. We gather for these things, a like-mindedness, an intent and in purpose. We have something that's going to create harmony among us so that we can sing with one voice, whether it's literally singing or whether it's living our lives in harmony also. 
The Greek word of like-mindedness really means that we are, uh, what's inside of us is policing or supervising us, supervising our, our outward behavior. So that we have the same thing going on inside of us that's going to supervise or police our, our outward behavior. We are sharing the same thoughts, the same attitudes. We have a willingness to submit ourselves to one another for the sake of someone or something else, in particular with Christians. It is submitting ourselves to one another, to something for the sake of, for the sake of Christ. We're not meeting together to divide, but instead... In like-mindedness, we're meeting together to reconcile with one another, to have unity with one another. And I know the thoughts here, and it's been said to me before even, well, we're humans, and we're not going to agree on everything. I agree with you on that thought. We are not going to agree on everything. But we should agree on some things, the most important things. We should agree on those things. It's why we talk often as a church about, about minimizing the fleeting things and maximizing the eternal king. That we should agree on that. That this life is not about us. It's about Jesus. It's about his words being in authority over us. His words being sufficient. It's about the love of Christ that he has demonstrated through his death, burial, and resurrection. Reconciling the world to himself using his church. We should agree on what the work of Christ has done, that it is completed. There's no extra need for us to work and earn our salvation, but instead the work of Christ is completed. I understand that we are humans, and even within a wartime bunker or tornado cellar, while the storms of life are all around us, we tend to have all kinds of priorities. And that's why we gather weekly to recenter those priorities upon Christ. That's why we say we want to be gospel centered as a church. Again, to gather and recenter our priorities that may have gone off center during the week, during the storms, during the war, recenter them upon Christ. I love what Paul says in Romans 15. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with, in accordance with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Of all the groups of people in the world, the church should be known for unity because we have Jesus. Of all the groups of people in the world, the church should be known as a unified group of people. And the only way for us to do that is to be reconciled through Jesus and to reconcile through Jesus, through his word, through his love, through his work. Don't depend upon yourself to bring unity. Depend upon Jesus. Don't depend upon your own eagerness or your own willingness or your own love, but instead depend upon Christ, asking Christ, submitting to him. Lord, on this day, as we gather, as a corporate body of believers, as the body of Christ, let me not seek my own will, but let me seek your will. And in seeking your will, let me submit myself to your, to your will while I seek unity with other, with other believers. I know the stories, the jokes. I've heard them. I know the disunity, disunity within the church. I've experienced it myself. 
And we need to be known as a group of people who are willing to unite for the sake of Jesus because of what he has done for us. In the spirit and the doctrine of adoption, as Christ has adopted us so that we might be unified with the Lord, we also put that into practice. and We unify with each other as we are unified with the Lord. Peter goes on to say, in this wartime bunker, he says, having unity in mind and sympathy, sympathy, a readiness to rejoice with those who are rejoicing and mourn with those who are mourning. Romans 12.15 talks about this, that we might have sympathy for one another, that we might be willing to, and this is the difficulty, enter into the suffering of others. We've talked about this already this, this year. But having in mind that others are suffering and we need to be willing to enter into that suffering with them. Most of the time, we want to prevent suffering. We want to stop suffering. But as we've already heard in chapters 1 and 2, suffering can be a good thing. Suffering can wean out sin. Suffering can sanctify us. Suffering can grow us and mature us. And instead of trying to prevent or stop, maybe we just join in the suffering of others. We also want to, we also tend to and want to run away from suffering. Because we don't want to suffer. If we see somebody who is suffering, let's just turn our backs towards them and run away from that. Because we know what suffering does. It causes you to suffer. And no one woke up, woke up. <laughs> no one woke up this morning and said, I can't wait to suffer. Lord, let me suffer. But as a body of believers, as we see people hunkering down in a storm cellar or in the midst of some battle or some war, instead of turning our backs on them, I'm talking particularly about those within the church, so if turning our back on them, running away from them, we should run to them. We should have sympathy, willingness to enter into that suffering. I'm thinking about another time of a thunderstorm, a severe thunderstorm hit my hometown, and uh, and we um, we actually didn't have a storm cellar. We always borrowed somebody else's, okay? And so my dad said, hop the fence, let's go next door. So we hopped the fence. Um, oh, actually, two fences. There was a, a rent house, two houses up from us that had a storm cellar. That the house was always empty, but the storm cellar was always full, which is a weird thing. Anyway, so we hopped the fence and hopped the next fence, and we opened the, uh, the door to get into the storm cellar, and there were our neighbors from across the street. And so literally, what do we do? We go down into the pit to enter into the suffering with them. We join them in... We joined them in the storm cellar. And we had great community as neighbors in there. We had good, good conversation about who's in control of the storm. We had those moments. And then our, our unity grew in that. As we're suffering through the same things, our unity grows. Now we are like-minded. Where are we going to turn to in the midst of, in the midst of this suffering? Yesterday, I got to preach a funeral. It was an honor to preach a funeral for one of, um, one of our family members, we call them, uh, because of a promise from, from Jesus, uh, someone that we got to serve for, for a long time, uh, a young lady at 54 years old, and uh, she leaves behind two daughters. 
She was a single mom for a long time because her husband uh, made some terrible choices and ended up in prison. And so we um, got to be a part of their life. And she, um, her name is Norma, uh, which is the Latin word that means uh, an example or a precept. She's the norm for life. And she is the perfect example, earthly example for my family to look at and see what it's like to have a wife married to an ungodly man, a man that's not saved, a man that's not even at home because he's in prison at, for, for a long time. Um, and then when he was released, she still got to, to, got to model submission and respect and genuineness and a purity of heart all for the sake of Christ. And I want to tell you that um, over the past five years, her husband and I have had a number of conversations. And um, there are a number of times when I wanted to tell him to get out of my office because I was so mad at him, so frustrated at him. I want to be the righteous judge and point my fingers at him and tell him how wrong he is. And yet he would leave my office after proclaim me proclaiming the gospel to him, leave my office and go back to his home where his reverent, respectful, pure in heart wife Norma was. And on Friday night, as I talked to her husband, as we're at a funeral at, at the funeral home, <clears throat> and I think about the suffering that we've entered into with this family, with these girls, and I think about um, how I I don't want them to suffer anymore, and how many things I want to say to to this gentleman. He begins talking about the example of his wife, about her purity, about her genuineness, about how she always talked to him about Christ. And he's an old bull rider, old cowboy, and here I am thinking like I need to be so clear and precise with theological terms. And he comes to the grips of, you know, I'm not sure why I haven't trusted Jesus I'm not sure why I haven't stepped inside a church building. I'm not sure why I didn't go to church with Norma. I don't know why I'm there. And I wonder what I should do. Well, I can answer that for you. We have clarity in this. The things that your wife has been teaching you by submission and by silence, but also by her words, is that Christ is it. And maybe you should trust your life in, in him instead of in you and submit to his lordship, which is a great preacher thing to say, right? And now you're expecting me to say, and he got on his knees and he prayed and he received Jesus and he filled out a card and we baptized him. You're expecting me to say those things. And he stood staring at me and he said these words, I guess I've just stepped away. I guess I've just stepped away. Okay, now we're in, red, we're in redneck language. Lord, help me to speak redneck at this moment. <laughs> Have you thought about stepping towards him? Have you thought about stepping back, whatever the case may be? Well, I thought about that. Well, how are you going to do that? How are you going to do that? Well, I don't know. Conversation ends there. And then yesterday at the graveside, we had more conversation, and he said, maybe Jesus is, maybe Jesus is it. So I'm going to ask you to pray for her husband. His name's Brian, and I think he's on the verge 
of trusting Christ with his entire life. Not because of the words I'm saying or some preacher or some cowboy church preacher, but because of the life of his, of his now wife who's in eternity, because of her submissiveness, because of her, because of her willingness to be pure and gentle. And in my side of it, my earthly sinful side of it, there are many times where we were helping this family and as a child is so immature wanting to say, entering to this suffering is not worth it. It's not worth it. Yet now as we have entered into the suffering of this family and I see the growth that happens in my own, in my own heart, the sanctification that's coming through that, and I see the the worshiping of Christ, the glorifying of Christ, I say, let's have sympathy. Even in the midst of a tornado cellar, or in the midst of a storm, or in the midst of a war, in the midst of grieving, in the midst of sorrow, let's be willing as a church, as people who belong to Jesus, to enter into the suffering, into the suffering of others. Sympathy is not just a simple redneck response of, oh, bless your heart. And I'll pray for you. No, it's, it's not that. Maybe it's that a little bit, but it's so much more. It's more complex than that. It's going to make your life difficult. It's I, I want to hurt and my heart hurt like someone else's heart is hurting. I want to bless and be blessed like someone else is hurting. I want to walk beside you. I want to jump into the bunker with you. I want to hold your hand or even carry you. I want to hold the rope and maybe even get rope burns as I'm trying to pull you out of the pit. I want to run out of Kleenex with you. I want to put on another pot of coffee and continue on. Sympathy says that, yeah, yeah, maybe it's dark, but look, we're together in this, and I think I see the sun rising. That's sympathy. And the church of all people who have a sympathetic Savior who came and entered in the suffering of us, the church of all people should be the ones leading out in this, entering into the suffering of fostering, of adopting, of widow care, of the suffering of grieving folks, of the unrighteous, the unrighteousness of your neighbor who's ungodly, yet you want to enter into their suffering so that they might be saved by Jesus. We, as a willing folk, as a folk who are submitting to Jesus, we show sympathy to others. Most human motivation stems from a desire to manipulate for your own gain, for your own economic gain. Maybe it's like a political power, your own authority. And I love what this author says. He says, Christian sympathy does not exploit. Instead, it shares and it supports. And if you want to be practical this week and you want to put this characteristic into practice, you will be like Christ and you will share, and you will support. You will enter into the suffering of others. True Christ-centered sympathy will motivate unity and love. It will not be about your gain, but it will be about the gain of others. Paul or Peter, as he's talking to us here, remember these people are in the midst of suffering, and yet he's telling them, even in the midst of your suffering, enter into the suffering of others. Even in the midst of your suffering, where you are in need of sympathy, show sympathy to others. And that's what I'm saying. When you're in the war, when you're in the storm, most of the time you're only thinking about yourself. And Peter is saying, stop thinking about yourself and show sympathy to others. In the words of my 7th, 8th, ninth, 10th grade coach, Coach Powell, 
Quit feeling sorry for yourself. Instead, look to the needs of others. He goes on to say that we should have unity of mind, sympathy, and we should show, show brotherly love. You know the word Philadelphia uh, comes from this. Uh, the word of uh, phileo, it's a brotherly love, a, a love that we show towards, towards family, towards a brother, towards a sibling. Uh, it stems also from the fact that P- Peter has told us that we are an oikos, a family being uh, built up together as living stones. We are a family. We should be willing to show a true family type of love to one another. Now, now I know that in our world today, we don't have great examples of family. And maybe you even have that. Maybe you're part of a terrible family or were raised in a terrible fam- family where you don't know what brotherly love looks like. So who models that? The church. Peter is saying this. He's saying the church, a characteristic of the church, is that the church would be showing brotherly love, giving the example, being the model for the world to see what brotherly love looks like. We are the example. Christ using his church to demonstrate love to the world. How we love one another, how we treat one another, the way we talk about one another or to one another, the way we even avoid one another. These things are a model to the world of Christ's love to the world. And so we, as the church, should model brotherly love. Have unity in mind, sympathy, brotherly love, and a tender or compassionate heart. This word is a cool word. It's kind of a gross word. Uh, we have to go back to kind of Old Testament time to, to understand this. We have to have an understanding of what it means to love the Lord your God with all that you are, with your soul, with your heart, with your mind, everything that you are. This word compassion or tender heart really means like, a, like this gut level sympathy that we would have a good gut level sympathy that you would be loving me from your guts, that you'd be loving me from your bowels. That's what the Greek word translates to, which is weird, I know. But it's more than just an, oh, bless your heart. It's more than just uh, praying for you. It's more than just a, you got this, Zach. It's more than that. It's I'm entering into with sympathy, and I'm also going to join you with everything that I am. I feel like... Because feelings are so important. I feel like this is one of the characteristics that the church lacks so much. We tend to separate. I'm going to love you because it's required of me, at least on Sunday. But I'm going to avoid you the rest of the week. That's not a true, genuine love or concern or compassion for one another. You get this story, the, the, the greater picture of it from Luke chapter 10. You can write that down, Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. Jesus gives us the explanation of this. What does it mean to love the Lord your God? How do you do that? How do you love your neighbor? How do you love yourself? When Jesus clarifies the greatest commandment, he talks about this gut-level compassion that's inside of us. That, um, that it's from that it's everything that we are, loving God with all that we are, from the inside out. Everything is changed from the inside out. I love God with, with my Sunday morning and my Wednesday night. I love you with my Sunday morning and my Wednesday night. But I also love you uh, with everything that I am, with my head knowledge, with my moral life, with everything that I am, from the inside, the very core of who I am, my guts, from my bowels. I love you from, from, from the inside out. Not just a not just a game, but reality. Think about these people hunkered down in this bunker during war, during battle, during these fiery trials, during this persecution. 
They are in desperate need of this. Peter is reminding them, you as the church are going to show compassion to one another. Not a fake compassion, not a one-time compassion, but a compassion that's coming from the inside out. A compassion like Jesus explains that the Good Samaritan had. A compassion that's from the inside out, a gut-changing, a gut-level compassion. For this to happen, for this to happen in the church, we have to have Christ fueling us. It has to be a, a vision change. It has to be a heart change. And you and I cannot do that. You cannot just set your mind and your eyes on Christ with your own will, like using the force. I'm going to do this today, and I'm going to, at gut level, show compassion towards somebody. You can't do that. Because if you do, you're going to end up doing like this. Oh, Lord, let me have compassion towards this man as he's, as he's complaining about how terrible his life is while I know how his wife suffered and his girls suffered and I feel my hands clenching. If I'm allowing myself to do those things and myself to rise up, then I'm the one that's controlling them. Think about it in terms of submission here, in terms of earthly masters and slaves. Peter is saying have compassion for the church and show that compassion to the world. In terms of earthly masters and slaves, what my master needs, right, in earthly terms, if he's beating me, he needs a good beating too. He beats me often, so maybe I could hire someone to beat him up, and then all would be all would be well. In terms of an ungodly husband, what he needs is simply to go, right? Wives, you think that? Hey, you know what? He's ungodly. Let's just send him away. In terms of a husband and how they honor their wives, like verse 7 talks about. How many of us husbands have been in this? Like, well, I want to, but my, what my wife really needs is she needs to understand her place. That she's lower than me. She needs to submit. She needs to listen. She needs to listen. It's not what Peter is saying. In terms of living in wartime and suffering, those are all surface level. All non-eternal. All momentary. That's why he says, don't repay evil with evil, or reviling with reviling, or cursing with cursing. But instead, we're living differently. We're allowing compassion, a, pa- a compassion that comes from within, not a surface level, but a gut-level compassion come from within, changed by Christ and only Christ. We're allowing that to fuel us and motivate us so that Christ receives all the glory and not just myself. If you struggle with compassion this morning, there is no simple or quick fix there's no simpler quick fix. If, you think, if you're thinking right now, I'm no good at compassion, well, bad news for you. You're going to continue to be no good at compassion. You're not going to be able to fix yourself. I'm going to work on compassion later. As soon as my grandkids leave, as soon as my kids leave my house, as soon as we find another associate pastor, then I'm going to start working on compassion. <laughs> it's not how it works. It's not how it works. Instead, it's a... Lord, change me. It's a denial of self. When when we think about what Christ desires of us, compassion being one of those, sympathy being one of those, brotherly love being one one of those, and unity being one of those, the fifth characteristic that Peter mentions is humility. And yes, it's fifth in the sentence, but it probably should be first in our daily life. Humility. Let's end with this. Mostly because I'm the most humble person in the room. 
And I want to end right before our response time with an opportunity for you to be humble also. Because you know I'm really humble, right? Not to brag. But humility just comes really naturally to me. Some of you are thinking, Thackerson, you're an idiot for saying that. (laughs) Thank you. I'm just here to serve you. When we allow Christ to change us from the inside out, the only way that can happen is for first, and Peter talks about this in chapter 5, first for us to humble ourselves before the Lord, which we just talked about, submission. And rightfully so that Peter would talk about this characteristic. Because to submit to someone, you're going to have to humble yourself. And when you humble yourself, you're going to be able to have unity in your marriage, in your church, in your family. You're going to be able to have that. Unity, Peter says, is a like-mindedness. Humility is a low-mindedness. Both are a mindset. Unity, we're going to be like-minded. Humility, we're going to be low-minded. Humility is a mindset that can only be changed by and governed by a vision cast upon Jesus, who alone is our greatest example. And so church, I really am ending there, and in sarcasm, I'm not saying I'm the most humble person in the room. I mean, in sarcasm, I was saying I was the most humble person in the room. I'm ending with humility. We're going to catch up with the rest of this later. But for most of us, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of suffering, humility is the hardest to come by because we start feeling sorry for ourselves. And yet here's Peter saying, quit feeling sorry for yourself. Instead, humble yourself. Have a low-mindedness and aim towards something greater. Aim towards glorifying Christ. Aim your life towards, aim your life towards the honor and the glory of Jesus. There's a great singer, um, songwriter, book writer named Andrew Peterson, and maybe you've heard some of his music. I know some of you have because you've walked into this building while it's been playing. But he writes this, We are most ourselves when we're thinking least about ourselves. The aim ought to be for the thing, particularly your life, to draw attention ultimately to something other than self. So for a Christian, Peterson goes on to say, that means accepting the paradox in the knowledge, or at least in the hope, that my expression of life, even if it is of the most ultimate chambers of my heart, can lead the audience, whoever that might be, the audience beyond me, and to the ultimate self, the word that made the world. So in our humility, in our denying of self, in our allowing Christ to work through us, in our humility we are leading others to what's ultimate, and that being Jesus. Peterson goes on to say, as a prayer, lead me home, Jesus. Let me die to my need, the need to be someone important. We all want to be someone important. We all want to to be the one that's changing everyone. 
If I wasn't for Brian, I wouldn't be here today. And when I say that, Brian, I'm actually important. As followers of Jesus, in humility, in humility we say, I'm dying to self so that others might not see me important and my low-mindedness, but instead that others might see Christ as most important. Peterson goes on to say, Die to self, live to God, let your words, and in his case, music, be more beautifully by their death in the soil of worship that the husk of your own imperfection might fall away and germinate into some bright, eternal song only God could have written. We are part of a great story. And as we enter into the suffering of the pit of others, as we, as we show sympathy, as we show brotherly love to one another, as we have an eagerness to, to, uh, to give compassion towards others, as we have an eagerness to be humble, in all of that, we are part of this great story that the author and perfecter of our faith is writing, not ourselves, this great story of Christ's in Christ alone. My hope this morning is this, that in our time of response right now, that at least you will do this. At least you will say, Lord, let me die to self. Let me die to self. Lord, in your Holy Spirit, work and transform me that I may be, that I may be the saved person that you are using to glorify yourself. Let me pray for us. Lord, help us. Even this moment, not so much even though it's a time of introspection, but not to spend a lot of time thinking about ourselves, but instead in this time, primarily let us think about our Savior Jesus. Let us fade away. Let us be willing to serve you, love you wholeheartedly, and then a willingness to serve others. A willingness to show unity or live unified. A willingness to be sympathetic. To love with a brotherly love as a family. To be tender in heart or compassionate. And of all of this, Lord, help us to humble ourselves before you and before others. God, remind us this morning a time of singing, God, that you are ultimate. And so because of that, we are not. And let us worship you. Point others to worship you and you alone. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.